to War Podcast. War Podcast is produced by the Middlebury Institute Translation and Localization Management Program, bringing together global voices from the localization industry. I am Regina Dukes, and I will be your host for today's episode. For students of localization, how can we apply what we've learned in the classroom to entry-level positions such as internship or project coordinator? In today's time, entry-level job positions aren't truly entry-level. When entering an entry-level position, companies always tell you what to do, but what about the things they don't tell you? We need to have ideas on hand. So how do we transform theoretical knowledge, such as localizability checks and content briefs into practical solutions? Today, I sit down with Yelena Postgren, Assistant Professor of Professional Practice at Middlebury Institute of International Studies, also known as MIS to talk about how students can take ownership of entry-level positions. Yelena, thank you for joining me today on War Podcast. To begin with, can you please introduce, tell us a little bit about yourself so that first-year students who haven't taken your courses yet can learn a little bit more about you? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here. I graduated from MIS in 2014 with a TLM degree. And I started from the bottom. I was a project coordinator uh, and I worked my way up to project manager, senior project manager, program manager. And some of the uh, companies I worked for uh, were SDL, uh, Media Locate, GoPro, and WhatsApp. Currently, after my WhatsApp experience, I came here to teach and I'm back with WhatsApp on a co contract basis uh, as well. So that's me in a nutshell. Thank you for that. So one, it is totally awesome that you graduated from MIS. So it's nice to talk to a fellow alum. Um, secondly, um, we're just going to jump into the questions if that's all right with you. That's perfect. So first question, as a MIS graduate, how prepared did you feel when entering the workplace? What surprised you the most when transitioning from a student to an employee in the localization industry? I actually felt very prepared because, again, I started from the bottom, right? I uh, had a project coordinator position with Media Locate, and that one required just an understanding of the basic processes. And the program then wasn't what the program is now. Like, we graduated with the basic understanding of localization, basic understanding of client vendor, and what the workflows should be. So in, in that sense, yes, I felt very prepared for that particular role. But at the same time, my second job out of college was technically called a project coordinator, but it was a contract with Google. And that one, there was a huge discrepancy between expectations and reality. They needed somebody to come in and build processes and to really consult, right? To be like either a program manager or a consultant for them. And I wasn't prepared for that. I didn't have the skill set. I didn't have the experience for it. That was very surprising. Um, but that wasn't anything that, you know, the program did to not prepare me well for it. The position was still called project coordinator. Had that been the requirement of the job, I would have been fine in that position. But uh, because it was actually supposed to be consultancy, there was a misalignment in expectations and reality, and it didn't work out. Another thing that surprised me was the difference between full-time employees and contingent workers. I had no idea what the difference was back then. I thought, you know, even if I'm a contingent worker, I'm a contractor for Google, what's the difference? I'm working at Google. I'm doing working on Google's projects, and that's going to be fine. 
the biggest gap there and surprise for me was there are so many rules around that. There's so many rules about what a contractor can and cannot do, what they can and cannot see, what kind of meetings they can and cannot have. And some of those were hindering to do the actual work, right? When I receive a project, for example, my first question, and if there's no languages listed, my first question is which languages are required? Google supported at that time, I believe is 120 languages. Clearly, they don't need 120 languages for this one sentence. Logical question, what languages do you need? When do you need this by, right? Contractor couldn't talk to the engineer directly. I had to go through another person, intermediary, right? And that caused a lot of problems because that person didn't know either. That person had to go to the engineer and it caused chaos within the role, within the environment, within the company. So that was very surprising, not knowing the difference. I wish I knew the difference before jumping into this role. Oh, absolutely. I can totally relate with that experience being from undergrad, how they prepared us to, you know, apply for work and whatnot, but without really telling us what is the difference between full-time, part-time and being a contractor work. Because due to contracts, there are stipulations around what you can and cannot do. So that is for sure something that can be very frustrating. What was the most difficult aspect of that transition, transitioning from student to employee? The most difficult aspect was getting out of the intern mentality or getting out of the project coordinator mentality. While I was with Media Locate, it was an internship. It was a project coordinator internship. And my work was handed to me, right? With a nice little bow on top. Here's your project, just coordinate it, right? The budget is already agreed upon. The schedule is already agreed upon. The languages and everything was ready. All I had to do was execute. And they told me exactly what I needed to do, right? Fantastic. Then as I grew through different companies, grew to different roles, there's this mentality that you have to find your own work, right? Especially on the client side. You, you can be as busy as you want, or you could be as relaxed as you want. It then comes back and bites you when you're doing your annual reviews and you have nothing to show for except the work that you have executed on. You didn't create any goals. You didn't further the team in any way. You didn't grow the team. You didn't grow yourself. That becomes a problem. And so finding this work, right, was challenging for me. Like, for example, when I was doing website localization with GoPro, entire pages were in English and I had two options. I could ignore it or I could try to understand why they are in English and why they're not localized, right? And when I started asking all of these questions, I actually understood the role of the localization team a lot better, right? Where there's a reason why certain things are not localized. Maybe there's not many people going to those pages. Maybe it just got missed and it should be localized. Things like that, where you can either ignore the problem and nothing will happen, you'll be completely fine. Or you can go in and ask the right questions and you know further your understanding of it and push your role into something bigger, like roll up your sleeves and really get your hands dirty. Yes, that that is very hard to do. Transitioning that that mentality from intern to um, full time employee, and also as an intern being dictated what to do to trying to find your own work to do can also be very difficult. So thanks for sharing that. That can really help us as students um, feel more comfortable when we get out there into the workforce. Yeah. And one more thing uh, I wanted to mention on this, you transition, right? Where you are first given a task and you're told how to do it. And then it gets, it's incredibly difficult to take an ambiguous problem, 
and bring it to successful fruition because you are hired to be the specialist. Nobody in the company knows how to solve this problem. You have to solve it, right? And that, to put it into uh, be better terms, that was the most complicated part. Like, how am I supposed to do this if nobody's going to tell me how? Well, they hired me because they thought I knew how to do it. And I did. I was prepared. I had the skill sets to do it. But it was kind of getting out of this imposter syndrome. Like, is my idea good enough? Is it going to be correct? I have to identify the problem, the needs, the solution, break the uh, problem up into goals and milestones, and in turn, take the initiative and lead the team to the solution. I, I like that you mentioned that last part because, you know, being in school, we are giving these concrete problems. And I'll touch upon this uh, momentarily, but this helps me understand your teaching methods as well. Which brings me to my next question. How has becoming a professor who teaches localization theory and processes changed how you think about the localization industry? Honestly, it hasn't. Uh, I don't teach theory. I try not to teach it. I don't know it. I teach based on the practices I have gained at work. Before working at WhatsApp, most of what I had seen at work was completely in line with what was taught at MIST. I didn't think I could come in and have anything useful to teach on, right? Because that was all that came out of my classes, right? The processes, the workflows, the vendors, it was all very much in line with the experience I got at school. Then through my work at WhatsApp, I started to see differently how localization teams are set up, where how ideas get invested in, how they flourish after seeing how content briefs are created and how the localization team fights for them in order to be involved in the whole process from the very beginning, like involved upstream, pushing for localization best practices, or how to set up localizability checks and advocating for them. That's all practice. None of that is theory. Uh, and I teach based on, on that. How much of what you teach in classes, such as content brief and localizability checks, come from firsthand work experience? Pretty much all of it. The topics themselves come exactly 100% from my work experience. I have to do further research to get to the bottom of the basics, right? Where do localizability checks come from? How, where do content briefs come from? Like the, the big general ideas, I have to do some research about that. But the concepts themselves, 100% coming from practice. And even if in my classes, I do bring up a theoretical concept, we will always apply it in some way into practice, whether it's marketing, whether it's help center, advanced project management, where we apply it to product, to legal, all of that. That's true. And as one of your students, I really do appreciate, appreciate that, putting that theory into practice while in the classroom, because it, it helps kind of cement the theory while also being able to ask you questions immediately. So from that, um, we're going to jump into kind of implementation at, in the workforce. So how do you go about implementing process change, like introducing localizability checks as a new hire? And after implementing these changes, how can their successes be made, uh, measured? Yes, this is indeed very hard to do, very hard mentality to get into as a new hire. But actually, that's the best time to introduce these things, right? You can play the noob card, like we call it, the new hires, noobs in, in Facebook. 
you get to ask a lot of questions. You get to bring up ideas without worrying about sounding silly or if you will, stupid, right? You're new, right? You get to play that card. You get to ask the questions that maybe have already been answered. But if you have that question, you're hired for a reason, right? If you have it, that means somebody else also has it. That means the company hasn't done a good enough job to explain the answer to you. So that's the best time to ask these questions and the best time to suggest process changes using data. So how do you, so you push for these process changes and you always have to have the data, right? How much rework is there done because we're not conducting a localizability check? How many localization issues do we run into taking more time than necessary for a localization? Do a pilot, get this data, right? It's easier when you're new because you're hired for your ideas. Present these ideas in your interview, right? How do you check the source content before starting localization? Oh, you don't. I have this idea. It's called the localizability check. You, this, this is how you do it, right? And then you get hired for that idea. And it's actually a lot harder to implement it the longer you are in the company because they say, well, this is how we've always been doing it. Like, why are we changing the process now? So it's actually significantly easier to change uh, the process, introduce a new process when you're new, but you always have to have the data make the case for you. Wow, that is like very contradictory to what I would think about, you know, being new and all like you wouldn't want to like stir the pot or make ripples in the water when you're new, especially during that probationary period. But then again, you are asking questions. So that that's a very that's a very good thing to have in the back of our minds as we get ready to graduate and enter the workforce. Did you mention how to measure the changes, like how successful the changes are? So same with same uh, data, right? So you're asking the questions, for example, how many localization issues do we run into and how much rework do we do without conducting the localizability check, right? Spin that data the other way. After doing localizability checks, this is how many issues we, we run into now zero. Um, having done the localizability check and redoing the source content, the source video, for example, localization takes two weeks. Without the localizability check, it takes three weeks because we need to go back and forth with the stakeholder, asking them all of these questions that would have otherwise been answered in the localizability check. So the same exact data, you're just taking a different spin on it. You're kind of fixing this data. We had all of these problems. We're doing a pilot and it has showed us a clear path to the solution. Thank you. So once we're kind of in the in the company and we have stakeholders coming to us, asking us questions and we're trying to do work, how important is stakeholder education? And how do you go about educating stakeholders about localization as someone new on the team? I can't stress how important stakeholder education is, but from the very beginning, right? Consider this as your work-life balance, right? Your whole work-life balance depends on this. Not just yours, but you have a team of linguists depending on you to not exploit them, right? When you realize that, it's a lot easier to push back. So consider a simpler example. If the stakeholder were to ask you to provide an Armenian translation and you don't speak the language and no one on your team can, but they want it today, right? Is it easy for you to say, sorry, I can't do this? 
Yes, it's pretty easy because you just don't have any other options, right? You just can't, physically can't. So same thing, just because your linguists can work nights and weekends doesn't mean they have to. And usually they work nights and weekends when the stakeholder doesn't understand localization, asks for a shorter amount of time, and the project manager doesn't have enough resources, doesn't have enough experience to push back on that. As we have seen with recent layoffs, working longer hours does not make you immune to layoffs, right? So you have to put yourself and your team first. You're there to build a strong localization program, not execute on projects and drive yourself crazy just because somebody has asked you for a faster delivery. You are the localization expert, so you should act like one. Why agree to a due date from someone who has no idea what localization is or how long it should take? You have to consider the consequences, right? That you will be responsible for this poor quality because if you push your linguist faster and faster and faster, you're going to cut out some steps, most like the review steps, the quality checks, right? You are going to be responsible for these localization mistakes, not the stakeholder. You're not going to go to leadership and say, we made this mistake because marketing asked us to deliver sooner. They're just going to say, well, why didn't you push back? Why didn't you explain to them what localization is? They're not localization. They don't know localization. You do. It's a process, right? It's not an overnight event. When you're new, it's even easier, right? You build these relationships. Say, go for lunch, go for coffee. It's like, hey, I'm new. We're going to be working together. Let's get to know each other and have a standing meeting once a week, once every two weeks, once a month, however often you need, right? But make sure that they know who you are. And the better relationship you have, the harder it is for them to exploit you. Because if you say, I'm constantly working nights and weekends because you're not planning localization in properly, the better relationship you have, the less they're going to want to do that because now they see a person, right? I, I had a really great example about this a couple of years ago at WhatsApp. Something to do with, the, it was a project that had to do with elections. And it was Friday, three o'clock. My stakeholder said, I need this spreadsheet localized by Monday morning. And that means my team has to work on the weekend to get it by Monday morning. The best thing that I could have done, which is what I did, I brought in my linguist into this meeting. They were in Menlo Park. They were there with me, in-house linguist. And she was asking questions and she says, so you want this done on Monday, right? Like, yeah, 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 Monday would be fantastic. And my linguist says, that means I have to work on the weekend. All of a sudden, because they saw each other face to face, oh, no, no, don't worry. I, we don't need you to work on the weekend, right? It's a psychological game that we're, that we're playing, right? If you don't see this person, you will ask, yeah, 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 work on the weekend. Do whatever uh, it takes to get this done. As soon as you see this person, all of a sudden, you're not so comfortable telling them, yes, work on the weekend if you're not their manager. Thank you for that in-depth example. And this is one thing that makes you an excellent professor and probably why a good chunk of students enjoy taking your classes is because of how you relate to us and how you share your experience with us. Like that helps us learn and know that it's fine for us to like bring in somebody into the, these ed stakeholder education meetings to see somebody face to face. And I also love how you, how you said that stakeholder education can be a psychological game. Um, I, and I think that's very important to, to say, um, not, not to think of it as a game, but think of it as like a psychological battle of, of trying to not let somebody exploit you and your workers and you as the project manager, 
really being the shield for your workers. Um, so I really appreciate how you how you bring that that mentality into your classrooms. Um, so the last question that we have is, can you talk about an example of a localization project that you worked on that was unsuccessful and how you resolved that issue? Because I'm pretty sure like we were wanting to something like that too. So your experience would be really great. Tons. There are tons of examples when a project is unsuccessful. And usually that means, in my experience, that means a project uh, didn't make it within the promised deadline, right? Other than that, more interesting examples, thanks to localizability checks, we were able to stop localization projects from flopping before they go live, right? The first time, before we started doing localizability checks, we had a video to localize, and half of my linguists said, we can't localize this video into our locale because the visual elements do not work. They are seen as aggressive or irrelevant, right, in our um, cultures. And the project was put on hold for two weeks until we figured out how to solve for that. Do we change the English video? Do we update every one of the localized versions? But thankfully now, with localizability checks, we're able to solve most of those problems. And the issues that we see is sometimes, you know, there's a problem in DTP, there's a delay in something. Usually projects that go wrong are usually some minor delays. However, um, one unsuccessful, I would say hugely unsuccessful project is when we had a legal crisis in our company and we asked our vendor to be available 24-7. Whenever projects come in, we had to get the translated versions out ASAP, like within an hour. And we promised our vendors that we were going to be there 24-7. And that led to a lot of wasted work, garbage in, garbage out. Just because we promised that we were going to be there, they would draft something, send it to us, we would localize it. Like, yeah, no, never mind, we're not going, going to use it. They would draft something again. And because we're there, might as well just localize it, right? That wasted a lot of our linguists' time. People went crazy over this particular example. So that was one that I would definitely change if I had a chance to do it again. A lot of projects, as I mentioned, that are unsuccessful delay things, right? Delay launches, right? But there's a silver lining to that. That's an opportunity for stakeholder education. Why did uh, the project, why was it delayed, right? Was the source file not clean? Was, did we have to recreate anything? Did our vendor have to solve a lot of source issues? There's a lot of room for stakeholder education there. Did we just not get enough time for uh, localization? And the next time, once we delay that launch, next time, you can bet that we will get the normal amount of time that we need for these projects. Another thing is when translators make mistakes, right? You always want to have your linguist back, right? You will get all the information from your stakeholder, and then you'll present that to the linguist. Most of the time, they will have a good reason for that mistake, right? It could be a source issue. It doesn't have to be a trans translator's fault, right? Maybe the source was not clear enough. Maybe there was lack of context. Or maybe this was the correct translation, and they are able to back that up, right? And if you do make a mistake, again, as I've mentioned in most of my classes, sorry doesn't help anyone, right? Instead of saying sorry for this mistake, switch that around. We pride ourselves in having the most rigorous quality standards in place for translation, for localization. Mistakes happen. 
and unfortunately even once is too much for us, right? That's unacceptable. Here's what we're doing differently to avoid this from happening again. So all of these things, all of these problems, all of these projects that go wrong, they are opportunities for something else. And usually that means opportunities for stakeholder education. Thank you for sharing your experiences and, and how you resolve the issues. And once again, I love everything that you say. I think I am becoming a broken record because I also love when you said that the issues and the mistakes that can and will be made are opportunities to include the stakeholder and to educate them, uh, basically to do a lesson learned and include the stakeholder so that they can learn more about the localization process, what went wrong, where it may have gone wrong, and what they can do to assist us to not possibly have the same mistake happen again. Yet, Lana, thank you so much for talking with us. You are fantastic. And everything that we've discussed today that you explained and shared with us today is very, very beautiful, awesome. We can take it with us and use it. It's very practical, in other words. And I think anyone trying to enter the localization industry will not have an easier time thanks to your knowledge and advice. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to talk to you as always. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for listening to this episode of War, a Ms. production bringing together the global voices of the localization industry. This episode was made possible with the help of the faculty and students here at the Middlebury Institute and by listeners like you. Thank you. For future episodes, be sure to check out our website at sites.miss.edu forward slash war. You can find War Podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.